HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Dashable, an app to help you find deals, discounts, and coupons for local businesses in New York City. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, People of Color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from whenever to whenever. I'm doing from the Lower East Side here in Manhattan, as is our special guest, who I'll introduce in a minute. We have, as usual, Nastasia the Hammer Lopez uh, calling in from Stamford, Connecticut on the sound. How you doing, Stas? Good. We got Matt in the booth. How, what's going on? That one was for you, Stas. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. How you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. We got John from Murray, 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 Hill, Hill, Hill. How you doing? Doing well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that, by the way, that that intro was done years ago. Now, this is that is not the style of music that Nastasia grooves on, true or false? I hate that music. I think it's not cool. Okay. It's the, not cool. Okay. That was by longtime uh, listener, friend of the show, and someone I know in the real life, Joel Gargano, who has an amazing restaurant called Grano Arso in uh, Chester, Connecticut. They are, I don't know if they're open yet for any inside business. But they, they are. They have, an, they have an outdoor business and a, and a takeaway business. And if you like food that tastes good, I suggest going to his restaurant when you are in Chester. And in fact, we don't have it queued up, but there is a cooking issues related jingle about it. Yes. Um, I'm sure the food is cool. The food is cool. Yes. And uh, I think they, John, you, you independently verified this. You've been to his restaurant. Yeah, it's, he makes some of my favorite pasta out there. His food is really delicious. Yeah. Really, really love it. Yeah. Now, uh, I have a, another friend of mine who is our special guest for today, 
who is also on a Zoom call, but I can almost throw a rock and hit him if I could throw a rock that high because he lives in the same sort of co-op-y units. They, in fact, the buildings he used to live in, that he lives in, used to be the exact same co-op as, as the one I'm in. There was a major fight like 15 years ago. Well, John DeBerry, friend of the show, friend in the real life, John DeBerry. How you doing, John? Pretty good. I could talk about the uh, the balkanization of the uh, East River housing do it. Uh, co-op do for it. an entire show, but I don't know if that's necessarily. Well, give me the, okay, so so it's a classic New York scenario. What they did was is there was a bunch of what they considered undesirable uh, tenement style housing in the Lower East Side between the water, which is the East River here, <coughs> and Essex Street, that they just annihilated. They just freaking like this is what they used to do and probably what they still do is like hey um there's a problem with this area why don't we kick everybody out and annihilate it so they did that and then built up a series of co-op buildings which at the time were um they're co-ops so you own them but they're they, they were intended they were paid for with government money so they were intended for kind of um you know they weren't fancy uh called Mitchell Lama houses and they extended from like Essex Street to the water which is like a what a 15 minute walk John total so it's big yeah it's extensive and they were all the same kind of owned by the same kind of co-op group and then there was a fight you want to discuss the fight or you just want to like you want to leave it there well I actually don't know a ton about about the fight but basically it was started by you know this you know amalgamated bank it's the same group of people. It's basically like Jewish factory workers in the fifties got together and created like a co-op um, place to live. And yeah, there's the like gar- the women's garment workers union, right? Yeah. And then there's like, so there's like a, amalgamated is named one of the subunits and there's Hillman and Hillman's the guy who started amalgamated. And then there's Seward park and then we're in That's East river. Uh, and then Seward park broke off and I have to say they, they they're a little bit nicer, so I think they probably got the the better end of that deal. Well, actually, um, I think your there's a lot of board drama. <laughs> your landscaping is nicer, and you, you have, have a the, whole like you have the better park. water views. Yeah, and you have all the you have all that like playground bull. We have like nothing. I mean, it's nice, but it's not. Yeah. It's no Seward Park. The the, the original <laughs> fight was because it used to be that houses here cost uh, or co-ops apartments cost almost nothing, literally like twenty grand. And but you couldn't just sell your co-op to somebody else. It would like go back into the co-op. So the people who were on the board used to do all this incredibly shady dealing mm-hmm. where they would like deal to themselves and their family and they would yep. build up these mega apartments where they would like they would like almost like gerbils like bust their or hamsters, bust their way through apartments and like up and down and, and get all the plum stuff. So there was a lot of unrest, shall we say. And uh, then there was like dealing about who was going to run the power, so they broke they broke apart. Anyway, so John and I are not in the same apartments, but they're kind of the same apartments. We it's like we was brothers, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think I can you... see your building from my window. Yeah, I can't. But I'm you're on the low. other side. I'm waiting. Yeah. Hey, listen, for those of you, well, who... I can keep tabs on you. Right, right. Well, she's smart. For those of you <laughs> who are crazy enough during the COVID to want to move into New York City, let me give you this piece of advice. You either want to be high enough up to get the good views or you want to be low enough such that you can see trees, but not so low that people are knocking on your window. So that's, that should be your you, – you, like, you should be looking at floors 
three and four or high enough to get a good view. That is my little bit of advice to you. And, you know, Nastasia only wants you to look on the west side of Manhattan, not down where we live, because she believes the sun is nicer over there. But it's not true. Well, the sun is nice everywhere. <laughs> but you, you are a, you're a west side girl, true? Um, yeah, I like the west side. Yeah. You lived on the east side for what, about 20, 30 minutes before you were like, I got to get out of here? No, in college, I lived on the, in Midtown East. And what do and you think? It was nice. It was great. I liked it. Really? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Anyway, I've only known you to live uh, over in the Hell's Kitchen area. That seems to be, if I had to pick a Nastasia neighborhood, that would be it. I think uh-huh. if you, even if you had like, like boatloads of cash such that you were like, you know, rafting around in, in your money pile, would you, would that be the neighborhood you would choose to live in, in Ma- if you were going to live in, in New York? No, Central Park, because you'll never have construction in front of you. Oh, yeah? That's yeah. Smart. West Park. Uh, anything below anything below 60th east west south wait wait are, would you want below like one of those 60th? no you, yeah. you mean basically on 59th street then you mean on 59th below 72nd yeah i guess yeah okay. below 65th below that's so weird basically i'll only live right. on central park south but we're talking rebecca yeah. oh yeah we have rebecca the boondoggler also on the air forgot to call where are you calling in from <laughs> i'm calling in from my home dave where do i live I'm just curious if you know. You live somewhere in Brooklyn, but I've never been to your house, so I have no idea where it is. It's true. I so I'm um, basically uh, right near the Brooklyn Museum. So okay. Wait, you know. the Brooklyn, the one that's right next to the Botanical Gardens. Yes. Yes. That, that's a great museum. Can I just it say is. that, like, when they open again, if you have not been to the, the the Brooklyn, what's it actually called? Does anyone know Brooklyn Art Museum? What's it called? The Brooklyn Museum. Brooklyn Museum? Yeah. Fantastic museum. Like, I was like, well, I live in Manhattan. I've got all the museums. i got all the good stuff. Brooklyn Museum worth a visit. Also, the Botanic Gardens are amazing. Okay, listen. I like the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens. It is... uh, I have... Nastasia, that is where Nastasia perpetrated the the Santa Claus atrocity. So I have a love in my heart for it (laughs) for that reason. I still, I can I'm now, like, all I'm picturing is Nastasia, like, bent over double, laughing her behind off while Santa is bathed in his own puke, dancing you, on the ground. And you and Jack went and hid behind the bar. Like, that was very cowardly. Uh, excuse also, you. Um, excuse you. It I wasn't just Nastasia. It, it was me, too. Were you For- also bent over double laughing? Probably. And that was, was also hilarious. that was also the day when we when we punked uh, Heritage Radio. That was the best. Yes, yes. So if, if for those of you, we didn't tell this on last week's show, but Nastasi and I were like they they Heritage kept on calling and pestering us about whether when we were going to show up and, and make our cocktails. We were ma- doing a frozen drink machine at the time. We were making frozen Corsairs, which is a preserved lemon drink, and. Uh, Nastasia sends uh, – we were talking about it. It wasn't that she was doing this on her own, so I'm not trying to say that she's a bad person. We were both doing it, right? But she sends a, um, a text to Heritage basically saying, uh, so like what time tomorrow is – it was the day of the event. What time tomorrow is load-in, right? Okay. And I'm gonna, we're going to go non-family for just one second, right? 
You're going to go non family. Yeah, remove your children second. if they're listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Earmuffs, yeah, earmuffs, as, yeah. as Vaughn would say. <laughs> so Nastasi goes at, and then they, they write back, it's today, it's right now. And she goes, oh, <laughs> sends that text, oh, <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> you guys are horrible. But question for you, Dave why do you think that Heritage um, was checking in on you? Like, why do you think they felt the need to hey. see if you were going to be there? Hey, Nastasia. Micro, micromanagers. Nastasia, <laughs> yes. in your whole life, yes. in your whole life, how many times when you said you're going to do something, have you not done it? Always. No, I mean, like, you've never not done it. <laughs> Keeping that, that, there's nothing you can say now. That's yeah. the end of the show. Backwards. Yeah. You always do what you're going to say. Likewise... Like if someone's if I say I'm gonna do a demo or something like that, do I do it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but you might be late, but you'll do it. I think it was more about like the timing in general, you know. And but I will say though that um, that was an incredible party, and the fact that one Santa got relegated to the end of it because he was uh, spewing red wine on himself was pretty much the highlight of the party for me. And Matt, I know I I saw you the next day, right? Because I came back to pick oh, up yeah. wine Santa, and you we got to carry it out it together. Whole thing. I think yeah. I had his head, and you had the rest of him, or the other way yep. around. I can't recall. Yep. Sounds about it was right. fun. I, there were there was there were some horrified children in the botanic garden, being like, yeah. "What yeah. is happening?" <laughs> so I, we got on this because we're talking about the botanic garden, and I was just going to say I'm more of a New York botanic garden Bronx fellow myself, but. I do like the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. But going back to what you just said, that wine Santa was puking up wine all over himself, and then we switched him to vodka. Now, yeah. John DeBerry has just written a book called Drink What You Want, which is one of the reasons he's <laughs> on the it's show so today. It's an amazing book. And so is that a valid thing to want, to be throwing up red wine over yourself, boot and rally, and go on to straight vodka, or not a valid thing? In the in the context of drink what you want, I'm presuming that that is not the meaning of the book. So why don't you tell us a little bit about well, the book? Uh, well, I mean, I guess the meaning of the book is like if it works for you, then good for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so if that's the transition you want to make, you know, I'm not here to judge you too much. Um, but yeah, the point of the book uh, was to really kind of democratize or sort of like break down uh, what makes drinks good on a few different kind of axes or, you know, measurement ways of measuring. Um, and then show people that the reason why a lot of drinks succeed or fail um, is sort of based on the same principles and whether or not you're doing something, you know, super elaborate, like with like, let's say a Rotovap or something like that, you know, or you're just throwing, throwing something together with what you have on hand, like you're kind of still using the basic principles and the skills are kind of the same. Um, so you don't have to worry too much about like doing something necessarily wrong because you don't have the right setup it's more about well you're using the tools you have and you're finding drinks that taste good um given what you're able to do at the time so it's kind of like it's this sort of like after being regurgitated through like the high-end bar and restaurant world <laughs> for 10 years i like came out of it on the other side being like actually things are really a lot more similar than they are different um and you know here's how 
you know, here's why the daiquiri is, you know, the, the kind of primordial sour and you can riff all these drinks on it, but they all kind of work in the same way. And here's how to sort of like demystify a lot of this stuff. Cause I think that like a lot of people tend to feel like if they're not an expert at drink making, then they're just like completely hopeless and they shouldn't even try, you know? So it's trying, trying to get to the point where people are really just comfortable because it's kind of like basically around in their own, the comfort of their own environment. Um, and then saying you can build on that if you, you know, if you want to get, get, get fancier uh, or more elaborate. Right. So you start with a, you start fun. So first of all, let's talk about the, Wait, are we not, the, are we not doing a family show or what? Yeah, we are. We are. He slipped. Come on. Sal. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, let's I, take, who I didn't did know. The, who did the illustrations for this book, by the way? Uh, her name is Sarah Tennant Jones. She's the artist based in the UK. Um, and I feel really, uh, lucky that my publisher found her because I think she like weirdly nailed my, my personality based on like not a whole ton. Like she started working on the illustrations like before the manuscript was finished. So it was kind of like this parallel process. And like, I don't think we even spoke on the phone. You know, we like sent a lot of emails back and forth and like shot lists and sort of like basic ideas. And I think she mined my Instagram pretty nicely as well. Um, and then just like this, the whole kind of, sort of sketchy uh but sharp um kind of personality of the book it was really just captured really really expertly um and i i knew i didn't want um photos because i did enough cocktail photo shoots that i have like a pretty um like pretty good ptsd from how long that takes and how expensive they are and how it's really only to me is a lot about the glassware than the drink itself um so i'd rather just have more fun with it and kind of have a more presentational um, depiction of drinks to show like, okay, well you could do this, but if it doesn't look exactly like this, it's not wrong. Like you're still going to have a good time if it's, if it works for you. Um, so I, I was really adamant about illustrations and originally I wanted to do kind of like a comic book thing, but that was like way too elaborate. Um, so we've kind of like settled on this and I couldn't be happier. Um, so for those of you that don't know that have never had to do it, like shooting endless amounts of cocktails for a book is completely the soul worst. crushing. It's like it's the actual worst. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so uh, I know, you know, our, you know, mutual friend, partner, Don Lee had to do a bunch of that because he worked on with Jim, uh, me and uh, who wrote the forward for this book on one of on one of those things. But it's just like making everything look different or interesting in the context of a book where you're doing a bazillion cocktails. It's just like. What are we going to do with this one? Right. Uh, right? I mean, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? It's just like, like, it, like, it's the opposite of like coming up with like an interesting new cocktail recipe or a twist on a cocktail where you can feel interested in what you're doing. Like being forced to make something look, vi- especially for someone like me anyway, where like I don't do garnish. <laughs> like, yeah, same. I was like, money though, all these drinks are so simple. Like you're just going to look, it's basically just pictures of glassware. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's, it's complete nightmare. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's a nightmare. So, but like, I didn't actually. I, mean, I should have known this, I guess. But like, I didn't know that you were kind of into the kind of '50s, '60s vibe. Because it's interesting because the illustrations and John, you commented on on how much you like the illustrations, right? Yeah, yeah, um, very big. It's, it's very got nice. this like '50s, '60s, like specific Americana vibe. But then obviously. The cocktails could be part of that, but then, you know, the illustration of you on page 132, and God, I hope you own that outfit, right? Where you're like some sort of like party vampire. Mm-hmm. Uh, more or less. Shoes. Do you own that outfit? Because uh, that wouldn't be in that normal 50s, 60s book, and I want to see you in that outfit at all times. 
Like, which aspects of that outfit do you own? Do you own the Lucite cane? Oh, I wish, man. The cane would be great. Um, <laughs> no, I, um, I only, what do I have that's Lucite? Nothing. Hmm. Shopping list. Um, the funny thing is that a lot of that stuff was just was with was, was Sarah. Like I, we didn't give her a ton of guidance on the, um, the feeling, you know, depictions of me, you know, like feeling, I think that's feeling fancy and then there's desperate and, you know, festive and all this stuff. And really it was just like, you know, this is the basic idea that we want a picture of me doing something that represents the, the mood of each chapter, you know? Um, and I think we probably, at least I didn't give her a ton of like direct, like explicit guidance. Like, Oh, I want you to depict me in like these, these clothes or like, you know, this, you know, pit position or anything. It was just, you know, I just really, um, I feel like it just came down a lot to this, the chemistry between the two of us in terms of just like she understood what I was doing without having to be given a lot of like really explicit instructions. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot between her and the art director in the book, but um, it just felt very, it just felt very natural. Like, and if you look at her past work, it's all has this really nice, um, like you said, the kind of mod fifties sort of feeling to it, but it's sort of, sort of timeless, but also calls to like, it feels very specific, but it doesn't feel like dated or like kind of periody. Um, so, so, you, so you're telling me you don't own the Fred McMurray, my three son shoes on page 102 and you don't own that easy chair. I want you to own that easy chair because it's no. in the feeling classic. It's in the classic cocktail section. There's a picture of John DeBerry in white, white bow tie. If, <laughs> a, by the way, for those of you that know, I probably uh, have John, a white bow tie. Yeah. A demure JDB. You check out his Instagram. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? That is a very demure yeah, yeah. JDB in like, uh, I mean, I would have that. I mean, it wouldn't really fit you know, my wife being a kind of more modern architect, that chair wouldn't fit in with her aesthetic, but I would sit in that chair. I want you to have that chair <laughs> and those shoes, you know, anyway. Uh, wait, one last thing I have to ask about the pictures. Does that mean, so John writes about a glassware and he includes a section on coffee mugs <laughs> just so that he can say that he wishes that you would throw away your mismatched coffee mugs and get well... matching coffee mugs. Or not throw them away, but have. But then he has two mismatched mugs. Oh no, those are the tiki glass sections. Those aren't mugs. Because I thought of that octopus as a mug, and I want that octopus glass real bad. Do you yeah. own that octopus glass? No, I don't. Um, the thing with the tiki mugs is that I, I find like the kind of like Cucamonga like tribal imagery to be a bit racist. So I was like telling her, I'm like, these are tiki mugs, but please don't use any tribal stuff. Like try to use like other imagery, like. I couldn't use Star Wars, obviously, but I do have Star Wars tiki mugs. Um, and I just tried to find a, a bunch of tiki mugs that didn't um, have this sort of like tribal mask or Easter Island or any of that kind of like stuff that I think is a little kind of dated for a lot of, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the coffee mug bit was sort of like, I don't know if you, if you had experienced this as writing, but like a lot of times if you just sort of write and you don't really realize what it is you want to write until you're like done writing it. And I just sort of started writing about coffee mugs and then I just kind of like blacked out. And then I was just kind of like, who has matching coffee mugs? Like what kind of like deranged energy do you need to like not, you know, like everyone just sort of accumulates them and it's kind of like, oh, they have like one mug from like a newspaper from like 1990. Um, and then like they sort of accumulate these these random one-offs um but like no one else does that for any other kind of glassware so i just thought that was a really interesting phenomenon and uh basically just an excuse to to write a stupid joke in the book um so yeah. do you have a set of matching world's best bartender mugs that would be amazing yeah i do yeah <laughs> now <laughs> definitely now, 
Now, before we get into too much, like one of your most famous drinks, which I think they still serve at PDT if you ask it. So you have a tiki mug illustration here of a shark, and I'm looking at this mug, and it would be physically impossible to drink out of it. So I'm assuming that is just there as a teaser for your drink, the shark. You want to talk about this drink? Yeah, uh, the shark is, uh, I think, it's actually, even though PDT is like, like basically just doing to-go, um, they actually have it in a little to-go version, so you can still get it, even though, you know, their menu is down to like four drinks. So I feel, <laughs> I feel very validated in that. And I came up with that like a really long time ago, back when, I don't know, probably like 2012. And I think everyone was very serious about cocktails. Um, and the idea of even like having blue curacao, like in the premises of a bar was like kind of heretical. Um, and I think that we actually had a, a bottle of blue curacao, um, like by accident like it wasn't like an authorized purchase <laughs> um so i was just kind of looking for ways to like do something stupid and i kind of started with, a, with the, the shark is like butter infused rum and like cream frangelico and like blue curacao um so it's just kind of this like abomination of a drink um that doesn't make sense with any of the kind of fancy sort of like ornate and the kind of precious drinks that you find at a lot of cocktail bars um and it was sort of a one-off like not one-off but it was sort of like a like a like a like a flame war with Jimmy in. Cause I was kind of like, well, how far can I push this? Like how far can I make this drink as ridiculous as possible? Um, and it just kind of like spiraled out of control from there. And then we ended up with the blue drink with cream on the menu. Uh, that's been there for probably eight years now. Yeah. Well, um, whenever I go like someone I'm with invariably, because I have a well-known hatred for blue curacao, not mainly stemming from, the fact that I think you should just add blue food coloring to the drink if you want to use blue, right? That's that's my main. I mean, question, it's the same thing. Well, but you would never choose you would never choose that spirit, right? To make to make blue, right? You would choose like you would choose like whatever your actual favorite orange liqueur is, and then just put a few drops of blue in it, right? And I always my gripe, and I should just say it like my, my gripe has always been that. Like, it's not the blueness that bothers me or the fact that it's fake. I just prefer more honesty in the fakeness. Now, where you're coming from mm. is an entirely different place. It's a, it's an F you on being precious about it, which I get. And they're in like, to be honest, in the bar world, and you, you, you can do it. You can do all of the spirit nerdery, right? So I feel, I guess at a certain point, you feel that you've earned the right to do whatever you want. You don't have to be full spirit nerd you can be a little more fun a little more like playful mm -hmm. um but like i am actually i don't have this spirit nerdery that uh, a lot of people have like this producer that producer i haven't spent my time you know traveling the world going to different distilleries to visit all the different places like that's because that's just not my wheelhouse that I've ne and i've never had to because i never really worked behind the stick on the regular, I've never had to have those kinds of discussions with patrons because if right. you're not a spirit nerd in a high-end cocktail bar, patrons will rip you, rip you a new one. They'll, they'll try to, <laughs> they, they try to sniff out your, your lack of knowledge in any one little category. Am I right about this? Sometimes. Yeah. There's a, there's a particular kind of person who, who gets pleasure from doing that. Right. Um, right. So like kind of, <laughs> I had this place where I didn't like, I didn't need to be able to kind of cut loose and say, I'm going to make something delicious with this ingredient that you hate. For me, it's more like, well, I would never choose that spirit other than for the blue, 
And so, like, I would rather just use blue. So that's where I'm coming from on it. You know what I mean? So it's right. not... But that said, I think that the Senor Curso, which this isn't sponsored or anything like that, but like the brand that we used originally, I think it's probably still the same. I think it actually tastes really good. Like it's actually a very good like Curacao like liqueur. And then it just happens to be blue. Huh. Well, that's good so. to know. Senor Curacao. Go try it out. The other thing is also this I've noticed. And um, things that taste the best on their own are not necessarily the things that taste best in a melange. You know what I'm saying? So, yep. um, and this has happened to us time and again when you're doing recipe testing. This is, goes for cooking and for drinks, by the way, is that you'll test a recipe with whatever you have on hand, and then you'll be like, well, now I'm going to go buy the good stuff, thinking that that's mm-hmm. inherently going to make your product better. Not necessarily the case. Yeah, things can definitely be less than some of their parts. Yeah, yeah. And things that taste bad on their own can make things taste good in the, in the levels and concentrations that you're using them. I definitely learned that doing, you know, all of my distillation work back in the day. Um, Stas, I've never asked you, what's your opinion on blue drinks? Um, I like the one Nick Bennett serves. Yeah. What's that one called? As soon as he, so Nick Bennett was the head bartender at Booker and Dax where there was a, like a strict no blue rule. Right. Although now we have, well, now when we reopen in the real life, like, well, you know, um, we have a, a couple of, but we just had food coloring, food coloring to it. But what's the name of Nick's drink over there at Porchlight, the blue one? I can't remember the name of it. I can't remember. You it's know, something, I feel like it's something I'm nautical. It up right now. Yeah. It's, it's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, it's like for me, I don't use it for my own reasons. And I, you know, um, I don't know if you remember, John, you were in the audience, but we, when we saw um, the, the Cocktail Kingdom put on the Japanese Bartender series. And, um, and you know, I, you're, for those of you that don't know, you spent how long living in Japan? Like a year or something like this? Oh, no, not that long. I mean, I spent about the, ma- the max amount that you could spend on a tourist visa there, which is about 90 days. Oh, oh yeah. Um, but you speak. But yeah, I mean, I studied uh, Japanese history uh, in college, so I had to take uh, a lot of the language course for for the major. So, so yeah. Um, were you were you part of that? Like, I want to say like two thousand and twelve, or was that? I think that's around when it was, right? Two thousand and twelve, like Japanese cocktail wave that was hitting the hitting the U.S. Or no? Yeah, you know, I did that. There, I think that's the course. I think maybe we were both in. I think Lynette was in it. It was like a whole, like Japanese bartending course t- taught by this like Romanian guy. I don't know what's who. I oh no, no, I didn't go to that. But that was the yeah, yeah. I remember what you're talking about Stanislaus. <laughs> yes, so he, he yeah. did a he did a Tales of the Cocktail, a Japanese. So okay, t- ancient history I know, but I'll give you a little bit. So everyone in the cocktail world was trying to figure out like what their kind of mystic mystic Mm -hmm. connection to the drink was going to be such that their combination of three ingredients served in a glass was going to be somehow magically and mystically better than your mixture of three ingredients put into a glass and served was going to be. Would you say it's an accurate portrayal? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of sort of like storytelling and myth-making involved in like the craft cocktail revival, if you will. Of the yeah, last which is, decade, which is which fine. Really, it's okay. Yeah. Because like, you know, it, a good myth, like right. literally can make someone enjoy the drink more. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Right. And so anything you do, whether it's a story, myth, like the truth and false, you know, the falsity of it isn't really the important thing. It's the enjoyment that the, that right. the guest has. So I'm okay with it. I'm okay yeah. with stories. Um, but there was a story around kind of the, this, and it's not really the fault of the bartenders that they were highlighting, right? That, for instance, the, the hard shake or these very specific Japanese styles, which were built around a very specific set of mm-hmm. kind of cultural, like, um, I don't know, a, a cultural system in Japan for right. how those bars came to be the way they are, how the apprentice system works in Japan, you know, how everything works over there has generated this stuff that to an American or a European is in some ways like very attractive, right? Very yeah. like you know, like extremely, uh, what's the word? I'm, I can't come to the word I'm looking for, but like compelling, right? Um, and so it kind of hit the world by storm and there was a group of Americans and Europeans who were like, I've tapped into the mysticism of the cocktail and they were doing this kind of work. Yeah. And so, you know, you're an interesting case because you're not like that, right? But you were also like literally tuned in tuned in, i.e. you could speak and you'd been over there and done this stuff, to kind of what they were talking about. So, I mean, what do, what do you think about how that kind of shook down? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's like a, it's a little bit problematic in terms of just like a like an American person like goes to Japan for a week and then tries to teach people the hard shake. I think that's the case with kind of any, you know, body of knowledge. Like a lot of people get an exposure to it and they think they know a lot about it and then they go and like kind of try to claim it as their own um and that just sort of makes you look foolish and can be harmful in many contexts um so for me it's like i knew enough to know that this was way more than i was willing to get myself involved in and in order to claim any kind of expertise or sort of any kind of like authority over this it would be a lot more work than i was willing to put in um just knowing what I know about the, about Japanese culture, you know, my limited awareness, like I knew it's not something you could take like a seminar, like a weekly seminar and just all of a sudden be able to be teaching other people how to do it or to even claim that you know how to do it. So for me, I was just like, this is a no for me. Like I, like I, this is cool to watch. Like, I, like it's interesting to hear about. I don't believe a lot of this stuff. I feel like a lot of this stuff is like, gets like sort of telephone gamed out of like the real authentic sources. And then people start repeating it and then it becomes this weird, like, bastardized lore about like ice chips and air bubbles and you know all these sort of silly things that that can get really um kind of more about the bartender than the person who's mm. who's drinking which goes back to like the kind of storytelling thing where it's like yes it you want to be like tell a compelling story with something you're serving as a bartender but also if it's just about you showing off then that's like really the opposite of hospitality um so i just knew that it was just I was just never going to get there. So I just didn't even bother. Um, but I appreciate it. And I think it's, I think it's cool and I love it, but I'm not going to tell you, tell people how to, how to do a hard shake. And I can never get those Parisian shakers open anyway. So that was also just big, big disqualifying for me on a practical standpoint. Well, when they were doing their demos here, right. So like, so Parisian that are the weird ones that like mesh in a way that doesn't seem like it's going to be physically possible for them yeah. to go look it up. It's a thing. Um, and, and the cobbler's also like, you know, any American's going to want to be able to do two, two and a half drinks per run. Cause that's just right. the way we operate. You know what I mean? So like those cobbler shakers and the giant cobbler shakers, have you ever had one that doesn't leak? No. Yeah. So the first one I ever saw Plymouth gin, 
uh, back when Simon Ford was running Plymouth Gin, made these giant shakers. I don't even know how much they hold, but like, you know, like. Quartz. Oh, I used those at Sambar. Yeah, you, I could. I made like probably 10 drinks at once in one of those things. Yeah. And Didn't, they are impressive. Pretty. They leak like a mother. You know yeah. what I mean? There's just, they leak. Anyway. Um, anyhow. All right. So now an interesting thing here that it's kind of like a, the, the book we're talking about now again, Drink What You Want, is you're trying to kind of make people feel like a little bit less nervous about doing things. And I think there's yeah. something that you touch on that I think would be very useful for a lot of our listeners. A lot of the kind of questions that we get on the people who kind of call in or that I talk to kind of off air, um, you know, like it seems that there's people who are like very well versed in technique or in um, in spirits lore or in spirits or food lore. But then when they have to go do something outside of what would be their normal comfort zone, they get very nervous. And so mm. this idea of going to like a relative's house or an in-law's house and having to make something from whatever they have can be kind of nerve-wracking, right? Yeah. Because you don't want to uh, insult them by saying, I can't work with your filth. You know what I mean? But on the other hand, you want to do something <laughs> that is good. So this is something you address. You want to talk about it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that you have to sort of, I mean, I think that there's like a, a element of like knowing your own limitations too when you, when you do things. And um, with like, I, I think you're referring to like my in-laws flowchart, which sort of like is a nice way of like looking at how I think in terms of like backup plans and like catastrophic anxiety fantasies. But like, you know, if you're, if you're in a place where you think you can pull something off like a drink, you know, if you're like rummaging through someone's house or if you're like at the beach or if you're in these places where you just don't have everything at your fingertips and you want to do something with what you have rather than planning and going shopping and all that. Um, it's clearly about managing expectations and, you know, you're not going to make, you know, like a perfect Ramos gin fizz or something super elaborate with, you know, whatever you have on hand. But if you sort of set yourself up to be okay with like surprising yourself and sort of like, being cool with like being having things rough around the edges or or even just be having it be a total failure i mean there's like so many times i've thought i made an amazing drink and it tasted like and you're just like well you know <laughs> you're not really risking a whole lot um so you know the idea that you're gonna like like you're probably not gonna create anything that's gonna explode uh you're, you know you're not gonna kill anybody probably um so like, you know, just like try it out and here are some principles that you can apply across many different kinds of, of scenarios, like you know, balance, like dilution, like temperature. Like if you can kind of achieve these, these goals in terms of like getting your drink cold enough or mixing it with enough water or aerating it in the case of a certain drinks, like you can kind of use your ingenuity and use like your knowledge of like the end point um, rather than getting too hung up on like, oh, I don't have a shaker or I don't have the right bar spoon or oh, should I have like gin instead of vodka? Like you can sort of you can sort of see through the kind of immediate limitations and kind of get to this end point, um, and it's a little bit more kind of liberating, um, and it just makes it more fun. I think. Do you think it's? I think it's hard, maybe though, sometimes for people to give themselves permission to be liberated, right? So, like for instance, like for us, like if you go somewhere and you're like. Oh, big cocktail person, make a cocktail. <laughs> oh, you know, you're like, ah, oh, geez. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, and then you got to deal with. I think I've had, see, that's like a verbatim quote from people. 
yeah, yeah. I mean, it happens. And then so like, right. if, you know, if in, and this is going to happen to a lot of people, I think who, you know, are listening is when they go to somebody's house, right? They are going to be the person, ooh, foodie, drink person, right. blah, blah. And then you're like, and then if, then you feel if you don't give something that knocks their socks off. You're a dick. Yeah. You're, yeah, right. And so, well, like, I, I think, like, what, what, I think, you know, well, it's it's hard to give yourself permission to f up, right. but I think it's kind of necessary for your own sanity and also to do a good job with what you have on hand. Yeah, and I think it also has to do with like the way that the craft of bartending has been sort of perceived over the years. And you know, if if you heard someone read a read a cookbook and they came over to your house, you wouldn't be like. Ooh, like make me a big Alaska, and then like, look at them funny when they didn't do it. You know, you understand that there's like a lot of preparation and expertise that goes into it. But I think people don't have a lot of the same background in terms of cocktails, so they're like, oh well, you know, you're just a bartender, you just like throw them in together, like whatever, that's it, and it looks easy, or you don't understand kind of the expertise or complexity that goes into it, and so you think it's just this thing that you can just kind of do wherever, um, which is true to a certain extent. The same way you can like make a sandwich um in a lot of places <laughs> that aren't a professional kitchen um but i think it sort of has to do with like this kind of catch-up that the public is playing with like actually the skill and the expertise and and the kind of like lots of hard work that goes into making like really excellent cocktails look very easy when you go into like a cocktail bar and some bartender just you know does two seconds throws together something that's that probably took like you know who knows like a week of preparation in the in the back and downstairs barbacks etc um but you just don't see that so i think people have this kind of warped view about like what it takes to make a drink and i think i had that too like i talk about it in the book where i thought i knew everything and so i would just go to a friend's house and be like oh let me make you something and i'm like like i don't even have a shaker i don't even have like simple syrup you know you, so you have to like kind of catch up with your own like what you don't know about what you know so i think that we're kind of in that still um, where it's either it seems like really they're really inaccessible or like really simple and easy, and there's no there's a lot of like middle ground and like nuance. John, can we talk about my favorite part of your book? Uh, if you don't, oh, the have whole thing, a cocktail shaker. Well, the whole thing. <laughs> uh, but the uh, alternative for a cocktail shaker. Um, oh. It's your favorite? Yes. Piece? Well, I don't well, I don't I don't go into this in like super detail in the book. I I talk I talk about it a little bit. Uh but you know, if you think about what a cocktail sh- like what you're trying to achieve by shaking a drink, you want to get it cold, you want to get it diluted and you want to get it aerated. So you want to like shake it around with with something that will whip it into whip air into it. You know, whether that's a Booker Index cocktail cube or some ice or whatever, like a rock, you know, you you can kind of get creative. Um and so there's a lot of things in your in your kitchen that can that are like sealable containers that you can hold in your hand. So for me, the the trusty quart container that is like the backbone of every uh, restaurant, along with Cambros that are usually they're very large Cambros, but you have like small these like small square containers that are that like everyone kind of uh, uses uh, in restaurants, but you don't see them a lot in homes. Um, and yeah, you, know, you basically any Tupperware you can like. I mean, I mean, I, I, just thinking off the top of my head, like you could even use like a Ziploc bag if you're like really desperate. Like, there's a lot of ways around it. Um, but to me, the the four quart Cambro, oh, actually the the two quart Cambro and the uh, the quart deli container are like they're high up there. Just make sure you hold that lid down, dude. Just make sure you hold. Well, if it's if it's a fresh if it's a fresh if it's a fresh Cambro, usually it's nice. 
And it's also, tight. also remember when you actually buy them. It, okay, we get them for real. We're talking about quart containers. What was called here a deli or a quart. Mm-hmm. They don't have them all over the country. I don't know why, because you can reuse them again and again. It seems like it's wasteful. It's not. No. When when you buy soup from somebody, they will invariably poke a hole in the lid. Yeah. Which just put your finger over that hole. It's not even going to leak that much. But like, I wish they. I know why they poked a hole in the lid, but I wish they would not poke the hole in the lid. Also, you can just order them. Like, you can just they're like the belly containers. You can just get like a sleeve of like fifteen, and they last forever. The only thing you have to watch out for is that there's actually different. This is something I learned working in restaurants for too long. Is that there's actually like a few different purveyors of cork containers, and they all have a little bit of a different fit. Ooh. So you have to look at the bottom. There's like a few different manufacturers. Sometimes they have a logo on it. Sometimes they don't. So sometimes you can have a mismatch and that drives me nuts. So I actually buy, I actually bought like a whole set <laughs> from the same purveyor like all at once. So they matching, all match. matching set. Yeah. yeah. So, so you, you refuse to have matching coffee mugs, but quart containers, you're like, absolutely. Have absolutely. To right. I'll yeah. drop purple, you guys right? some more quart container knowledge because I am also an aficionado of the quart container. Quart containers weigh the standard quart container that we get. I think we buy Fast Cathy. I'm not sure. Uh, the they weigh 32 grams. Yep. Maybe Summer's going to weigh one more, one less if you get a different brand. Quart containers without a lid weigh 32 grams. This is something you should commit to memory so that you just don't have to worry about thinking about it. Right when you're tearing stuff out on scales or if you need to figure something out. 32 grams. Second, quart containers. The containers themselves are made of polypropylene. Polypropylene can handle heat quite well, Mm -hmm. which is why it's fine to nuke in in one. You can even put one into, better be careful it doesn't start floating, but you can put it into a water bath and heat it and heat around to like thaw that stuff out to pop it or whatever you're going to do. Polypropylene, great. Polypropylene, very, very bad at cold temperatures. Yeah, they get really brittle. Really brittle. So when you freeze a quart container, right – and you pull it out, you have to be very careful because if you set it down too hard, you'll crack the quart container. Now, if you set it down real hard or if you drop it, it'll shatter and there'll be little pieces <laughs> of quart container all over, the, all over your floor. But if you just hit it and crack it without shattering it, which can happen as it thaws out, you'll get a leak. I've had this happen to me more times than I care to think about. The other thing is the lid on a quart container is not made of polypropylene. The lid on a quart mm. container is made of polyethylene. And polyethylene, right, while it's got good flexibility and compliance and fits on, makes a nice lid, is not okay with super high heat. So if you've ever noticed, if you put something into a quart container and nuke it, if you nuke it a little bit too long, like the, the, the lid will turn into a chef's hat and then eventually explode off the top of the quart container because you've expanded the, the, the gas. But the reason that it expands out is because and deforms is because it's made of polyethylene, which has a much lower service temperature than polypropylene. Polyethylene, you're not even really supposed to boil it, the stuff that that is, because, not because it'll melt, but because it'll deform and become real kind of uh, plasticky. Which is Why do they do that? So that it can I, seal over the edge of the bottom part? I guess, or you know, maybe it's on purpose so that the, the first thing that blows off is the lid if somebody overheats hmm. it. I don't know. But, I mean, that's why, you know, for years people said that not to use uh, Ziploc bags, which are polyethylene, to do reheat on sous vide. 
And they made it seem like that because the company that makes the Ziploc bags didn't want you to put it in boiling water. Because if you've ever had Ziploc bags into really hot water, when you pull it out, you're like, oh my God, this feels weak. This feels wrong, yeah. right? It's, it's because it's approaching its service temperature. So you really want to keep those lids below around like 70 Celsius, uh, you know, 60, 70 Celsius in that range to have their full structural integrity. And that, that's why that happens. But I like this term service temperature. Service temperature? Yeah. Very useful. Yeah. 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 Um, I keep uh, – the other problem with core containers is – and I've seen this a million times – is please dry your core containers before you restack them. Oh, God, please. yes. Please. And also, if you work in a restaurant like Sambar where everyone's going to be packing core containers with chopped scallions, like try to segregate <laughs> – Try to segregate your your alliums from your from your grapefruit, juice, especially something like mm. grapefruit juice, because like grape for some reason, and I think and I'm reading uh, you know an advanced copy of Harold McGee's new book, which is you know when it comes out we'll talk about, but like I think there are some sulfury notes in grapefruit and like minor like kind of notes, and so that when you have other sulfury notes like onions, it just really takes it in a wrong direction. You know what I mean? Like especially grapefruit juice, it's, any anything that, but really like. We had so many liters of gin and juice, which is grapefruit juice for us, ruined by pouring them into scallion-tainted sambar quart containers. Um, so buy a sleeve of quart containers, like John <laughs> says, for yourself. Get the lids, right? Don't throw them away unless you crack them. As soon as you crack them, please throw them away. Nothing's worse than pouring a liquid into it and having it pour all over your counter, right? I also, John, you might not believe it, but I use, uh, agree with this, but I also use them for storing my leftovers for food and whatnot because I think oh, it's yeah. much more efficient. Yeah. Me too. So I also get the, the pint containers, uh-huh. and I have a couple of the eight ounces around because oh, yeah. it, it's very sad. And they all take the same lids if you get them mm-hmm. the same purveyor. It's sad for me to see a quarter-full quart container in my fridge. Real sad. Yeah, that's that's the that's the restaurant life. Yeah, and drilled into you, drilled into you. It, yeah, right. And if you've ever worked, also like here's more restaurant life. Uh, don't first of all, you should have a station in your kitchen with plastic wrap, a decent quality plastic wrap. I also have a bar sealer, not a vacuum sealer, a bar sealer to like mm. reseal bags and tater chip things and and flour and rice packages and whatnot. Right, but keep a roll of blue tape and a sharpie there. Yep. Right, and just you know. Just put a piece of blue tape. It takes an extra second, but then you know when you put that in. So you're not, when did this go in? I don't know. What is it? Ba, ba, ba. Just label it and keep that stuff in the, like, resist the temptation to take that Sharpie and blue tape and put them elsewhere in your house. Keep them in your kitchen next to the plastic wrap, which is the classic place where you're going to be packaging everything to put back into your fridge. And uh, remember my other piece of advice, which is if you wrap food in aluminum foil, just throw it away now, <laughs> right? Unless you label it with blue tape and you write what's on it. As soon as you put something in aluminum foil and put it in the freezer, you would have been better off just throwing it away now because that's what happens. The reason I put things in quartz and, and clear plastic is because if you can't see it, unless you're a different kind of person than I am, you won't eat it. You know what I mean? What do you think yep. about that, JDB? Yeah, I'm trying to think what I use. Uh, tin, I only use tinfoil now when I color my hair. Yes, I would believe that. <laughs> yep, believe, it looks you really good. You do your own coloring job? Yeah, I do now. Yeah. And do you feel the quality is the same? No, absolutely not. I did it yesterday, and now the hair that's like the ends of my hair, it's like 
I've been combing it and it's like literally falling out because um, it's been bleached like four times. Uh, and wow. if you go to a real place, they only will they only will put the bleach on like the new parts of it. They use like a brush. It takes like five hours. It's like a huge pain in the ass. Um, but if you just slather yourself in, in bleach and sit there with tinfoil on your head for like 45 minutes, like your your hair will, will burn off. But, you know, it's pretty short. So I don't really care. I can just shave it if the worst thing happens. a lot to unpack here. <laughs> so, so Booker had his hair dyed like straight green and we paid the full price. This is before COVID. We paid the full price to get it done by someone with talent. It's worth it. Yeah, well, she had this technique where she like put it in in such a way. I don't know what she did because I don't. It's not my. I don't understand how this works. But she did it in such a way that when it grew back, I mean, obviously you're going to see it, but it looked okay. She did some. Yeah, what they do is they like they like paint it sort of like in a gradient, so it like fades into the end. So it's not just like the sharp line when it grows in. Um, so that's that's what they do. It's like it's it's actually like sort of like they color your hair in a way that looks like it transitions back to your natural color. See what I mean? Like, is it, so it's if, good. If you can pay for someone with the skill, pay for someone with the skill. Know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Hey, John, can we talk about the haircut that I'm really pushing for you to get? Oh, the, uh, the Gregorian monk. <laughs> yes. Oh no. Why? The Friar Tuck? You're going to shave yes. the top ball and leave a little. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I've I mean, why not? It. You know, you should do it. Yeah. But like, I mean, that's, quarantine's you know, the best time. And if you do that, can you also get the the line the line beard that runs from where you're? I don't do I don't do facial hair. Sorry, <laughs> I'm trying to get my facial hair removed. So like that's a deal breaker. Thing? Yeah, yeah. Wow. How long does that take? Lasers. I've gotten four treatments so far. Oh my god. Oh my god. So can you let it just grow where they haven't treated it? I would love no, to see it, that. No, it like they basically it's like the it, you have to do it like a bunch of times and it like. You, the hair grows in and the laser zaps the follicle. So it, like the, the hair itself heats up and then kills the follicle. And you have to do it a few times because their follicles aren't all active. Uh, so, so it's not like today I do the upper left side. No, no, face. they do the whole thing. It takes like 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my it's God. Great. I would have loved it if it was the other way. That would be cool. And then you could just grow these patches. Oh, It'd be like half your face has facial hair and the other half doesn't. Well, yes. but then if you were like committed to the mutton chops or something, you could just be like, I would like permanent mutton. I would like it to not grow in anywhere that's not mutton chops. I think you can that's do that. You can, you can request that. Okay. So uh, are there option. people, because everyone like it's the, it's the underbeard that is the biggest pain. The neck is the worst. Well, I yeah. went in, I went in and I'm like, can you just take the hair off my neck? And they're like, you might as well see your whole face. And I was like, sure. So <laughs> yeah, they, they, they upsold me real, real hard. Yeah. <laughs> So how much extra is it for the whole face as opposed it's to the It's insane. Neck? That's why they were like, basically, you're here. You're already doing it. And it's an extra, like, 10 minutes, like, of just, like, because they just go beep, 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 all over your face. And, like, the, the whole thing takes, like, maybe 15 minutes because your face is relatively small. Does it make um, that noise? It actually does, kind of. And it's like a little snap. Wow. Ooh. Yeah. Huh. It, like, hurts a little. Like, my, my, the person who does it is like, you like this a little bit too much. And I'm like, I'm like, I just want results. Like, come on, do it. <laughs> And does it work equally for if they can do it to any skin complexion? Uh, I think it works better if you have the higher contrast between your skin and the color of your hair. So I have very pale skin and I have rather dark chestnut hair. So it works particularly well. But I think it's different. They use different frequencies of, of light hmm. depending on your skin color. So so are you going to get your hair lasered into a fryer tuck? Ooh, yeah, that's, a, yes. that's a commitment. But yes. Yep. No. <laughs> Sight unseen, permanent intense. tuck. Yeah, permatuck. <laughs> I would like, 
Wow. I think we should take up a collection with the Cooking Issues crowd to get JDB with the permatuck. <laughs> like, that would be amazing. I would, lo- I would love to see that. Basically, this so. male ex- accelerated uh, male pattern baldness, yeah. right? I mean, no, but it looks different. But it's intentional. You want the edge. You want the, the sharp edge. It's a sharp edge, and it's real full all the way around. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing. That's why it's different. It's like it's it's a different look. The Only a young the man can pull off bangs type thing. You know, yeah, like it's yeah. amazing. It's a, it's a, it's definitely definitely a young man's haircut. The full tuck. I would pay. I would pay. A hundred dollars to see Nastasia rock the tuck. Hundred dollars. One hundred dollars does not seem like enough to make that happen. It doesn't sound no. like a lot. I'm saying Nastasia, what would be the price to make that happen? I'm just curious. I don't know. I guess a million. A million. <laughs> see, this is how we get into discuss- Nastasia and I get into so many arguments like this because she'll come up with a number that's just like so. Like, okay, we're not family we, show, wait, but like what? any disgusting thing, right? <laughs> She'll ask me, Wait, what would be a family I'm like, show I don't know, me, but not I don't a family know, 30 show grand. What? I said a family show when you talk to me, but not a family show when John talks. Technically, it's a retroactively a family show for John. I have every utterance of a swear word uh, time stamped, and it will not oh, exist oh, in the final job. thing. Good, good no, but what I'm saying is, is that like we, the I'm actual so subject matter is not appropriate. I don't, the know, things what that, I don't know what you're going to bring up. Well, I do, we, and let's not and, go there. And but... any number, any number of unpleasant things, we're like, yeah. how much would it cost to get you to do blah, uh, right? Yeah. And for me, my number's always like, what, Stas? Way lower. Way. Like, w- like, way lower. And my thing is, is that, like, someday I hope that we're, I don't want to do this, because you don't want to walk up to someone who doesn't have money and offer them money to do something bad, right? That's that Robert Redford movie. But it's like, it's like, I feel like, if someone was actually to offer that Nastasia's number would actually be lower, if someone actually showed up with the wheelbarrow of money, I don't think it would be a million dollars. I think if someone showed up with a suitcase with 80 grand in it, you'd be like, yeah, I'll go tuck. Well, the nice thing with the tuck is that I think you could basically cover, if you have long hair, you could cover the tuck with the remaining hair. And just you put it in a ponytail. Tuck length. Well, you would have a ponytail at the bottom, so it's a so it's like a rat tail fryer tuck <laughs> situation. It's not a Gallagher haircut. It's not Gallagher. It's tuck. Don't bring up Gallagher to me. Ugh, I hate him so much. And Mike loves putting on a Gallagher like clip on YouTube, and it's I hate it. I hate it. Whoa. It's the worst. Marital feel, bliss ruined by Gallagher. I They're feel compelled. We're not that far from the end of our time. And the chat is like awash in uh, just speedy theories. Okay, well, listen, listen, listen. Elysio wrote in on Instagram with, and this, by the way, thank you, because uh, I was looking it up last week, and I think it was, so for those of you that didn't hear the Jaspiti story, we talked about it on our 10th anniversary episode. We talked about it before. It's the pastry that I've never gotten to eat. Everyone that planned the wedding is dead. Uh, I can't figure out. My stepfather doesn't know really what a Jaspiti is, and he was the, and my mom, they were the ones that got married. I never got to taste it, thanks to my crazy uh, dead grandparents and the motorhome and the parrot and the two dogs. And what I didn't mention is that- What are you talking fun- about? This is just, the Shispiti You just gotta story. listen. Go back okay. in time one, one episode. You just gotta listen to the last <laughs> okay. episode. It's yeah, fun. one thing I'll say is that I've had to miss the Jaspiti at the wedding, right? That I've been hearing about for months, that this was the only pastry that you ever needed to taste. And 
when my grandparents made me leave the wedding early before it was over, who does that? Who makes you leave your own mom's wedding before your mom's wedding is over, right? Assuming that, you know, you're alive at your mom's wedding. Um, so, and then we drove, drove to make it to back to my house in Mount Kisco and park the motorhome in the driveway where, not then, but later on, it would live for three years where my grandparents lived in my driveway, which is a true story. Um, they didn't have the keys to the house. So I just had to sit in the driveway in that motorhome for like a day waiting for, you know, my mom and my stepfather to come give us the keys. That yeah. anyway, she's speedy. So Elizio wrote in, I guess it's Elizio. Uh, uh, hi, Dave. Just listening to the podcast and wondering if uh, the pastry at your mother's wedding is uh, Sospiri. How do you pronounce this, Stas? You see this, Sospiri? I didn't I share it with her. S-O-S-P-I-R-I. This is what I instantly heard. My parents are Italian and speak dialect, and a local bakery sells these. And S-O-S-P-I-R-I, Italian wedding pastry filled with uh, a lemon thing. This has to be it. Before, the next best guess was uh, Zeppoli de de San Giuseppe, right? But this has to be it. I think you have solved it. I think this is the answer. So now I just have to find someone in New York who makes it. Chef Joanna was in on the chat and said this. I was listening to the 10-year anniversary podcast and realized that you may not have seen my previous reply. Oh, it's the same person. Okay, yeah, it's your previous reply. Yeah, she, that's her That's her theory. Perhaps bastardized the way that Capicola becomes Gabagool. Oh, my God. Don't get what's our What's our favorite, Stas? Uh, well, calamari, right? Yeah, yeah. Calamad? Well, yeah, that's my favorite. Like, they, they, first of all, San Gennaro feast, like, one of the only good things about COVID is that that didn't go on this year. Like, that... <laughs> I hate that feast Isn't it so much. It's in September, so, so I could still have time. What? It's in September, so I could still have time. Mm. Anyway, like, I hate it. I hate it. Um, and... There's, just, an, just, there's another person yeah. with a Connecticut theory, though. I, oh, what's that? I, and I mean, this one sounds better, I think. But here we go. Uh, is it possible that the speedy pastry was was a generic reference to a pastry from Giuseppina's Italian bakery in South Windsor, Connecticut? I don't know. But no, this is more Boston. And I guarantee you that uh, Archangelo Adonisio, the butcher from Boston, did not go to South Windsor, Connecticut to get his pastries. That sounds um, right. But the – now, I'm pretty sure that this is correct. This, uh, hey, this hey. Uh, Sospiri thing is correct. Hey. But San Gennaro's, hey. like – yeah. John DeBerry needs to run. Oh, well, John uh, – Thank you for for coming on and go check out Drink What You Want, uh, his his new book. Can I run through a couple of questions or no? Because I have answers to all the questions that I have. For I questions for me? No, 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 no. These are just questions that you could weigh in on or not. <laughs> yeah, no, John, you can. Yeah, you can go. And it, won't, it won't. No, I'm getting. I'm getting. Up. I'm getting kicked out of my house for for the afternoon for some work. So yeah, I believe that. All right. Well, well, anyway, thanks. For all my on. love. Uh, check out his book on uh, fine, fine book-selling platforms. Uh, do you have a particular place you prefer people buy it or just Amazon? Uh, eh, Amazon's probably like my fourth choice. Um, you can just uh, go to like Penguin Random House and they actually have like a whole smorgasbord of vendors where you can do like, they'll help you find like independent bookstores near you. So 
just search search for drink what you want John DeBerry and then it should it should pop up. Yep, so John of the Berry. Thank you so much for thank you. Uh, coming on. Yeah. All right. Oh, oh, before you go, what? are you gone? No. Yes. So your your daiquiri, your classic daiquiri, two three quarter three quarter. Do you actually do that, or do you shy the lime up when you're making it for yourself? I do the lime up. Yeah. Okay. And so I I don't shy the lime up. I shy the sugar down. Mm-hmm. And also, like older I get, the more I come closer to a half half. Well, obviously for gin stuff, I'm half half, not three quarter three quarter. But even on the daiquiri, I shade the stuff down now. Like, are you changing as you as I mean, you know. You're a lot younger than I am, but are you, do you change as you as you age or, or no? Uh, no, I mean, I think I kind of like having the sugar bumping the um, the lime up rather than putting the sugar down because the sugar has a nice like texture to it, and then it gets the dilution. Whereas it can just be a bit hot if you're lowering the proportion of non rum ingredients in it. So I just like to keep the volume up. Right, whereas but that's you're. Me. Whereas your margarita recipe is considerably drier. Right. You prefer a drier margarita. Yeah, I'd say that's true. And it's because it's got a lot more going on, you know, with like the Curacao or the triple sec or whatever you're using um, in the agave. So it just has a nicer, um, like to me, the balance is different. I feel like a daiquiri is supposed to be chewier. Hmm. All right. All right. Well, anyway, thank you so much for coming yeah. on. And uh, Matt, do uh, do I have a second to uh, rip through some of these questions? If there's anything that's very time sensitive, do that. Save the rest for later. This episode is brought to you by Dashable, an app created to help you find deals, discounts, and coupons for local businesses in New York City. Dashable will help you find the deals worth dashing for in a variety of categories, from food and drink to art, health, and pets. Support local and save money when you download Dashable today. That's D-A-S-H-I-B-L-E. I'd like to see what Dave considers time-sensitive with these. Well, uh, some, they, do they have uh, a Normally it's like holidays or parties or, yeah, 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 yeah mm-hmm. a wedding, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Got it. What, what, like, John, do you remember any being specifically time sensitive? No, oh, no. Dave Foster did send us a bottle of uh, Idaho spring water in a Perrier thing. I did get a hold of it, it, it was delivered. Uh, but I wanted to wait until we were all together to taste it. Does that make sense? I mean, Stas, you want to taste it, right? Yeah, we still have limoncello to taste, but I don't know when I'm ever going to see you. We should do uh, like a socially distanced but all together like thing. That would that even work? What, I mean, what is what is thing? What, yeah, what is thing? Is thing recording? Radio show. Like oh. we're all yeah. Yes. Like of course. So we could all talk into our own mics. It wouldn't get confusing. Or I guess we do it in the radio show. We do it in the, we, in the studio. Yeah, it probably would end up not being live, live. But yeah, we could do it. We could do it in. Uh, we could do it in Connecticut. Yeah, I have a couple calls on pressure cooking. I'll get to Cess uh, next time, I guess, because that's going to take a, a long time. Uh, Matt Hall writes in. Uh, I've heard Dave state a preference for non-venting pressure cookers. How do I tell if my pressure cooker is venting or non-venting? Thanks. If it goes or when it's using, it's venting. The Kuhn Recon only does that when you've really jacked the pressure higher uh, than you are uh, supposed to. Um, 
Uh, Tyler Lynn wrote in uh, about the HVD A57, says, uh, we actually bought the HVD uh, waffle iron like you and even brought it through my brother-in-law. Uh, I saw you said you could swap it from 110 to 220. We bought it as a 110 and are actually interested in changing it now to 220. Do you have any idea how to do that? Also, your recipe is amazing. We've tried a few and yours is easily the best. Well, thank you, Tyler. Um, you got to call the guy who you bought it from, who I will just refer to cryptically as Ray Waffles. Now, the problem with Ray Waffles is Ray Waffles, as we say in the trade, got the COVID. And he wasn't, he was uh, kind of sick. I haven't spoken to him since, but my brother-in-law has. But uh, get back in touch with Ray Waffles. He can, he can do it for you. I hope he's okay. I haven't spoken to him since um, all that stuff went down. Um, all right, so I guess the one rest more. we should... Yeah. One more? Right. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. Let me oh talk popsicles? <laughs> all right. All right, all right, all right. I'm going to get to all your popsicle, backpack, vacuum machine, roto-vapping uh, stuff uh, next week, I guess. Cause, uh, but next week, Nastasia is not going to be on. So who are we going to get to stand in for Nastasia? There's an ice cream man, and John will be on. Oh yeah, we're getting milk cut, milk cult coming on. To, next week will not be the uh, the next the flower Armageddon uh, episode. We're trying to schedule that for later on this summer. Correct, John? Correct. All right. And Nastasia, on our way out, have you had any interesting cooking experiences this week? Because I know that you've been trying to re-ramp your interest in cooking. And someone wrote in, actually, which we should have, I should have said this before I, I, I let you have the last word here. Someone said, and I can't find it, uh, maybe John will remind me. Someone said that along with uh, Classics in the Field, we should do a whole thing on cooking for one and trying to keep interest up when you're cooking for one. But uh, what, do you, what do you got? Ooh, uh, no, nothing this week. But this weekend, I might have something cool. Yeah. John, do you remember where that question came in from? I think that was Devin Patel, the pasta troll. Oh. <laughs> yeah. well, I'll read that then on the way out, and then we'll leave you guys thinking this. This is Devin, the pasta troll. I hope everyone is staying safe. I write to you because I want to make a request. Can there be a new segment on the show, like Classics in the Field, for cooking alone issues? I often wonder how much pasta sauce is the right amount to make for oneself, or how many days can leftovers stay in the fridge and still be non-toxic. Uh, and last but most important, is it okay to eat out of the pan you just cooked the meal in, including dump meals? One-stop pan, am I right? Or maybe uh, tips for the budding home cook like salt your tomato slices or slicing an onion with a butter knife for no tears. Much appreciated, Devin. Oh, Stas, before we go, so I think this is something that maybe you could take on. And I think it's a lot of it's also just maintaining interest when you're cooking for yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, every day it's like, ugh, I got to cook dinner. But do you eat? But I'm do you having, eat directly out of the pan? I'm having a very positive outlook on it now. I like that. Can't wait for dinner. I like that. Well, because that's <laughs> going to be helpful to make you feel better all around, isn't it? If you feel better about like your daily routine, isn't that make it better oh, at all? Yes. Do you eat right out of the pan? No. What? It doesn't that doesn't seem like a Nastasia thing? No. Well, I'm just asking. This is the question. One yeah. of the things Devin yeah. wanted to know. So you don't eat directly out of the pan. Yeah. Uh, to me, eating but, directly out of the pan is one of the big payoffs of cooking for one. Wow. Okay. This is a different mental attitude. Nastasia, Matt, hot, more, a little bit more of an adult. No. Likes to eat off of a plate. <laughs> it's really hot. Yeah, and um, the carryover heat's going to mess up what you've got in the pan. Wow. Yeah. And so, also then, like, do you have to stand? Like, where are you sitting with this? Are you standing over the stove eating? 
Yeah, yeah, I probably didn't probably didn't move very far, and the carryover yeah. heat screwing up the like what I've done is the, exactly the kind of thing I don't care about when I'm cooking for myself. It's <laughs> true, sad. and if you just eat it quickly enough, it doesn't matter. So maybe we'll end with this Nastasia story. See if she remembers this. But I was on the phone with her, and she almost punched herself in the face because she becomes so debased cooking by herself that she made one of the first, one of the biggest fundamental prep errors ever and she was like what am i a useless rookie i should jump into the freaking sound do you remember what you did stas yeah i cut i cut the onion before i cut the strawberries on the same board right yeah people people and like (laughs) you what i love about and this is why nastasia and i can work together because instantly she's like why am i breathing this is ridiculous. <laughs> yes. No, I had people coming over, so it was like major, major blunder. Yeah. Well, that's probably what saved you. Like, if you didn't have people coming over. True. Are your boards wood or plastic? Right wood. Do you do the same thing I do? I stick it in the sink, and I sit there, and I scrub it down, and then I put my nose right against it, and scrub oh. and nose, scrub and nose. It takes so long to get that onion out. No, I don't do that. I don't do that. Yeah. And remember, if you use a relatively porous knife, like a carbon steel knife, and you make the mistake of cutting onions, not only will you get that weird color on the onions, but that onion flavor will stay on your knife for a good long time. Am I right? Am I right? Anyway. Uh, So we'll see you next week, but not with Nastasia. Nastasia will come back in two weeks with her her cooking for one extravaganza. You want to just take care of that segment? You want to be the cooking for one person? Can I think about it since this is the first time I've heard of it, or should I? Of course you can think about it. Okay. All right, but you know we have two weeks, so if you want to do it, we'll do it. Okay. If you don't want to do it, we won't do it. Okay. All right, cooking issues. Cooking issues is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.